this episode of Riding the 3x3, Patrick Fetch and I, Russ Heltman, jam through a lot of topics. Full action-packed hour in three lanes, starting with the NBA playoffs and NBA coaching hires. We discuss all the latest action on that front. And then lane number two, Shohei Otani in this AL MVP race is a lot of fun to watch so far as we get to the halfway point of the MLB season. We got another no-hitter, a combined no-hitter from the Chicago Cubs and Wander Franco making his debut in the major leagues. And then lane number three, NFL topics, some fun ones. Pat and I give our three favorite alternate jersey or alternate helmets that we think we might uh, hopefully see in the near future with the rule change coming in 2022. And then the Steelers make some uh, some interchanges, some changes on their offensive line. We get the uh, the kind of downtrodden look outlook from Pat Fetch or glass half full outlook, no matter how you see it in uh, each side of that topic in lane number three to close out the show. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google, Facebook, Periscope, Twitter, wherever you get your media, you can find Riding the 3x3. Catch us on uh, all those platforms, and let's get into lane number one. Riding the 3x3, we are live here on Periscope and Facebook Live. My co-host Patrick Fetch joining me on the stream. we got so much to get to. Let's get right into it. Three action-packed lanes we got NBA playoffs starting us off with the Clippers punching back at home, holding serve to get that series to 2-1 against the Phoenix Suns. And the uh, the raging Booker looking like a boxer with the broken nose. Devin Book was feeling the effects of that injury. We'll talk about all that. we got Trey Young balling out, destroying that drop coverage from the Milwaukee Bucks. They need to adjust after a stunning game one loss at home at Fiserv Forum to the upstart Hawks. Then we got the Celtics and Pacers making their coaching moves uh, well-known around the NBA circles. We also have Dallas angling with new additions to their front office and coaching staff as well. Some questionable additions to the coaching staff based off of previous issues within their organization. MLB, lane number two, Shohei Otani. He is balling out and right now having one of the most impressive MVP-type seasons we've ever seen in baseball history, let alone in the past decade. And then we got another no-hitter. Pat and I will discuss whether it even matters anymore. Is this like the triple play? That's kind of like my kind of thing now. Is, is the no-hitter kind of becoming the triple play? We'll discuss that in lane two. Lane three, Pat and I have our three favorite helmet design changes that we think are going to be fun to see in 2022 with the new rule announced from the NFL uh, offices in New York City. And we got the Steelers O-line looking a lot different than it did in the uh, past couple of years with them making their playoff runs. Is this the end of that dominance? We'll get the opinion of Pat Fetch and see what he thinks about the uh, exit of David DeCastro and the entrance of Trey Turner coming off of a tough season in San Diego, trying or not San Diego, in Los Angeles with the Chargers trying to return to form and get back to his Pro Bowl ways. But Pat, we have a team in the NBA playoffs that just never seems to die, have won every single game three in these playoffs after falling down 0-2 in each of their first two series. They did it again against the Phoenix Suns, but not to be deterred. They always seem to get off the mat. There's something special about this Clippers team that wins 106-92. You get a near triple-double from Paul George, who on the solo show Tuesday, I kind of described him as thriving in this moment and really accepting this role because he gets to be that guy. He gets to tap into that form he accessed during that MVP type of uh, performance with the Oklahoma City Thunder as the lead guy a few years ago. And to me, this is kind of where he's most comfortable. You add in Trey Mann doing some great stuff in that third quarter. They really hounded uh, Devin Booker on the defensive end. You get a 10 for 40 duo performance out of Chris Paul and uh, and Devin Booker on the other side. And this this is uh, now a series, 2-1, with the LA Clippers holding serve at home <laughs> trying to make this thing a, uh, a best of three. In, uh, in game four on Saturday night. Our prediction is still looking good on that Western Conference. We're still alive. We both had the Clippers going, and so we'll see how it works out. Paul George is so interesting. I don't know if he's the most self-aware or the least self-aware human on all time or basketball player on the court. It feels like he's been there, done this now. He's with the Pacers. He's been there with all the teams, wherever Paul George has been around now with OKC and whatnot. So like he understands this moment of the playoffs and for him to miss both of those free throws in game two for the Suns right. to be able to come back and win 
that was just absolutely brutal. And I don't know if Paul George like feels that moment too much if he considers it, if he just misses him. But then he comes back in the next game and just plays awesome. He he never feels deterred. Paul George can get clowned left and right, you know, pandemic P, playoff P. But I'm really impressed with just the way that he's come back and played. He's just been awesome. I mean, every part of it, the way that he's led Terrence Mann, the way that he's led the team with Kawhi out. Uh, you know, Kawhi doesn't even feel like he has to be on the bench, right? He goes and sit with his family. I think that's a testament that to who the real – I think it's a – it is weird, but it's a testament to, you know, who the real leaders of that team are and like who people are like looking up to and like gravitating towards, I think, on the bench. And I think a huge credit to Ty Lue. I, I somebody uh, I don't even remember where the quote was or who I saw it from, but it was mentioned the differences between Doc Rivers and Ty Lue and how Ty Lue is so good at uplifting his players and empowering his players and encouraging them to, you know, blossom in their best ways, this, that, and putting them in better positions, you know, where Doc Rivers was almost this like military disciplinarian who like demands things from his players. It's like, you, mm-hmm. I think you can understand why Ben Simmons wasn't responding. If you put Ty Lue in that situation, I wonder how that Sixers team responds to a different coaching style. So I'm a huge fan of what Ty Lue's done. I think Paul George has been fascinating. It's extremely unfortunate, Devin, the the Devin Booker broken nose, just because I feel like that is going to have a real, real impact on the way that he plays and uh, going forward. But and it's, it's been, I mean, it's, that's one of those injuries that you think like people are like, oh, it's just a broken nose, like just schlub it off. Like, all right, first off, have you ever had a broken nose? Most of these people saying that have never had a broken nose. Secondly, to get it back to where it's playable, they had to re-break it. They said, I was reading an athletic story this morning. He had to get eight shots of, uh, of like, uh, nar- not Narcan. I don't know what it was. Like something to, whatever the numbing is for your nose to be able to make sure he didn't feel it. And he had to break it back into place. He's, and he ended up wearing a mask that, funny enough, the athletic story included. He called uh, Hamilton, of course, famous for wearing the mask all these years, playing for the Detroit Pistons, trying to ask him how to best <laughs> around the court with it and rip told him just put it on don't ever take it off act like it's not there and he did not really do that in this game pat he was fidgeting with it it clearly affected him he only made five shots his uh his running mate in the backcourt chris paul also only made five shots these guys went a total of uh, 10 for 40 and to me pat overall it's a testament to patrick beverly no doubt like for him and this clippers team to buy in completely, like you were saying about Ty Lue, to fully engage and fully respect what he wants to do with the lineups, game in, game out, series to series, momentum swing to momentum swing, it's really helped this team stay afloat and keep an even keel in these playoffs. And and even keel is anything that uh, that Devin Booker has experienced over the past two nights. I was watching uh, Tim Lugger break down the game on SportsCenter last night, and he had a great point and a great observation where – at one of the possessions in the third quarter, this has been, what, 20-plus minutes at this point of Devin Booker getting hounded by Patrick Beverly. He is all up in his grill. He's so sick of the pressure and the man-to-man tight defense that Ty Lue threw at this team uh, with Chris Paul back, realizing that they would slow down the pace and be able to play tighter and closer in their uh, defensive adjustments. And Devin Booker was so sick of it, throwing the ball in the track in the paint. And it was a simple sloppy turnover that you never see him make. It was clearly a sign of frustration. And I think he's frustrated with the injury. He's frustrated with the way he's getting defended by Patrick Beverly right now. Because after that game one, it was clear, Pat, like you were saying, Ty Lue recognized what he had to do. He unleashed the junkyard dog in Patrick Beverly. And it has worked to a T so far. He is playing fantastic on-ball defense on Devin Booker. And not even on-ball, off-ball all the way. He is tracking him seeking him out the entire time he's on the court. And despite only putting in eight points on offense, it doesn't really matter what he's doing on that end when he's contributing this much on the other side. When I watch Devin Booker, I think a lot of people probably feel this way. I see so much Kobe Bryant in his game. And obviously Booker idolized him. And the way that he's able to get to spots, his release, how high he gets. But he needs to find some of that attitude in this series. I think this is going to be a you know a defining series for Devin Booker, whether he's able to overcome this injury and Pat Beverly. Like having a broken nose and then having Beverly right right under your chin the whole time. I can imagine it's the most uncomfortable feeling you can imagine, you know, you could possibly be right. in on a basketball court. So and I think this is going to be a huge challenge for him. It'll be fascinating. Campaign as well, Pat. The fact that campaign was not available 
after the first half of the game, went down with an injury after his four minutes of play coming off the bench. It's huge. It's really big. Had a career high of 29 points in game two. Uh, nine assists, I believe. No turnovers. He was the best facsimile possible you could have of Chris Paul in the court as a uh, guy leading the point guard brigade and really just able to give them different looks and different pace settings throughout the game. He can turn it up. He can drop it down. And Chris Paul acknowledged that in his postgame press conference saying, I got to be able to change the pace better. I got to be more active and I got to shoot it better. And I think we're going to see a way better performance out of him. I think the next game, but I don't know how much better Devin Booker is going to play with the way that Patrick Beverly is defending him a and the injury. Like that's a broken nose. That's a legit injury. He's not going to make the excuse, but I mean, like I'm going to, you got to acknowledge it. It's like the torn meniscus with Joel Embiid and the Hawks in the last round. People wanted to rip Joel Embiid for some reason after game seven saying, oh, why does he have all these turnovers? What is he doing? Yada, yada, yada. Well, A, they're asking to do way too much in the offense and B, he's all banged up. So like, I'm not going to sit here trying to trying to rip a guy who's actually going out there and gutting it out on a torn meniscus, nor am I going to rip Devin Booker for how he played. But he, he kind of acknowledged it a little prodding afterwards that he needs some more out of his teammates. He needs them to access some more uh, some more open shot opportunity. I think we might see that. Hopefully we'll see that Monty Williams make this series a nice, tightly contested game number four. And to close this thing out, Pat, the best option to do that is DeAndre Ayton. This man needs to take 20 shots a game. He is setting the all-time record in the playoffs for a uh, debut field goal percentage across his first, what, 12 games or 14 games? Like, he is shooting 72% from the field. Every time DeAndre Ayton touches the ball inside of that little rectangle, that thing they call the paint, good things happen. And so they need to get him in more screening actions. They need to throw more lobs. And even if he gets banged up or fouled, he's shown the ability to make those shots. So I think DeAndre Ayton is is shown to be the most versatile defensive or versatile overall center option in these playoffs. They just need to access him more and tap into him more. And I think that could be a a great way to get rid of some of that on-ball pressure that they saw um, from the man-to-man defense of the Clippers is getting him in more screening actions, getting him moving more more towards the basket because – when you get switches on DeAndre Ayton with high contested on-ball pressure, he's going to be able to go up and get that ball and slam it home. Beautifully put, Russ. Beautifully put. I mean, I I think uh, giving Devin Booker a few more days off, hopefully he'll be able to be a little bit more active and run, you know, let him play like Clay Thompson almost. Right. That's the crazy thing about three. this, though, is the one-day rest in between each game. Like, they're, they're motoring through these things. Right. It's crazy how yeah, so I'm nervous about the broken nose, even with the next game, too. If he can sprint and maybe just try to keep him out of the paint more, let him set him up for three, and you have to rely more on Chris Paul and that, that screening action, right? Just take the pressure off. And he's got to hit those elbow jumpers. Like, if Chris Paul isn't hitting the elbow jumpers, it's going to be tough to win. And also campaign. Like, who knew campaign? Like, that's a serious injury. That's a real legit thing. And uh, we got to move along now in this series. But it's a really fun one to watch. A lot of back and forth. The chess match is there. And Ty Lue, Monty Williams, one of the uh, the better coaching matchups we've seen this this playoff so far. I think this is going to be a long series in the Western Conference Finals, just like I think it's going to be a long series for the frozen tundra that the Milwaukee Bucks find them in with the, the Lord the Lord himself, Ice Trey. 48 points, Pat. An unbelievable game one performance from a guy that, to be honest, I didn't think could ever even reach this in year eight. Nine, ten. I'm, 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 I'm go. I'm gonna say it. Like Trey Young, to me, I never thought he'd be able to do this. I never thought we'd be here with the Atlanta Hawks. I ripped all over that trade with the Dallas Mavericks to send Luka Doncic, uh, the third overall pick in the 2018 draft, to Dallas for a future first and Trey Young. But my oh my, Pat, they are winning that trade as of today emphatically. They are up 1-0. They control home court advantage with a chance to go to the NBA Finals for the first time, I believe, uh, I think in the Atlanta Hawks history. I don't believe they've ever been to the NBA Finals. I got to do the, the obvious hard research on that, but it's been a long time, a long, long time, and they have never won a championship. Uh, I think it's been since like the St. Louis Hawks in the 50s was the last time they went to the NBA Finals. So 48 points, a unbelievable performance by Trey Young. Sets a career high in the playoffs. Goes 17 of 34, destroys the drop coverage defense with that beautiful floater game. It's the best in the league right now in that area of the floor. It was the thing I most emphatically hammered home on Tuesday. What are they going to do in that five to 10 foot range area against Trey Young in this game? 
They were not able to solve it in game one. He got a 23-piece from the cleanup man, John Collins. Clint Capella, 12-19, and 19, my fifth-best center in the NBA. Had a bunch of discussions, a bunch of arguments about that all season long. I'm sticking firm to it because that guy just makes winning plays all night long. And here we are, Pat. The Milwaukee Bucks have their backs against the wall once again in the Eastern Conference playoffs. I love Trey Young. I love Ooh. the Hawks. I, I I did see this in Trey Young. Maybe not being this good, I didn't call it, but he has the blueprint in Steph Curry, right? They are such similar players. And Trey Young's ability to shoot the ball is you have to respect it. He can make it anywhere well, across. I don't court. think they're similar at all. I think he's Steve Nash. I think that's the thing that's kind of come to fruition in these playoffs. He's more Steve Nash and Steph Curry. Steph Curry's not going out there and giving you 11 assists a night. He's not averaging 10 and a half assists in the playoffs or in a season. He's never going to be able to do that. And Trey Young, I don't think he's ever going to be able to shoot 40% from downtown or 42% from downtown on nine or 10 attempts. Trey Young to me is, is Steve Nash because of the way he commands the floor at his height, at his size, both really small guys that were able to completely control the game with their intensity, their intensity, and their uh, their basketball acumen. So I got to put back on this on the step three comparison. But like those are two great comparisons, two multiple time MVP winners. It is not not a uh, not bad uh, not bad comps to have in the uh, in the old back pocket. Sure, and I just think the most impressive thing about him is been ability to score uh, within the three point line. His efficiency yeah. on twos and that's what's really befuddled defenses throughout this playoffs and that they, they pressure him out then he gets under and he's able to do so much in the middle of the paint and that's why his assist numbers are so high whether he's kicking it out to Collins lobbing it to Capella uh you know Bogdanovich has had a stinker in the last few games and they're still managing to win too Hoyter has yeah. been have been absolute breakout star of these playoffs pretty much so it's been so fun no one shot Hawks. well for the Hawks in this game. Like Trey was the only guy that make multiple three-pointers on the entire team. They shot 25% from downtown, but the Bucks on the other side, they go 8 for 36 while the Hawks go 8 for 35. That's a huge that's just like that's just a scary sign for the for the Bucks that this Hawks team that can light it up for a couple games in a seven-game stretch uh did not do it in game 1 and still got the win. The Bucks just stink. They're, they're poorly run. I think the coach absolutely needs to go after this season, and I'm not rooting for them to win. I absolutely want the Hawks to win this game. They're so much more well-rounded, even when they're off. They have guys that can take off. When the Bucks, when Giannis, it's, everything about them right now is just a disaster. I, I feel like they're going to fall apart just like the Sixers did against like a team like the Hawks with the energy. He can go deep. He can beat you from you know Gallinari to Trey Young. It's it's so much more fun to watch that brand of basketball. It feels like they have more fun playing the game. It feels like they feed off the energy of the away crowd, the home crowd. I, I genuinely think the Bucs are in huge trouble, uh, and especially because it feels like Giannis is in his own head when he's at the free throw line. Middleton you know, has to be an all-NBA-type player for them to really feel their potential on offense. And uh, like Drew Holiday well, has really- that that Middleton – when he shoots below 40% from the field, they are, I think they're now 0-5 in the playoffs, and they are undefeated when he shoots over 40% from the field. So he is literally the bellwether. Like Middleton's play is the bellwether for their entire championship potential in this whatever window they have with uh, Middleton, Yacht Holiday, and Giannis as their big three. Like he has How's to be mean? better. You're right. Six for 20 is not going to cut it after he was so huge on the stretch in game seven. And how does that make you feel? You know, I, I don't feel great about it. Found the box. You don't feel great, but I don't like. I think Middleton can get hot. I think you can get him get him going, and they have to get him going in game two. That's the key. They need to get him going early. They need to call some plays for him. They need to get him going downhill towards the rim. Uh, let him see that ball go through the twine, and then I think it's it's kind of like that shooter's mentality. He strikes me as one of those guys. But zero for nine from downtown. That's just oof. That can't happen. That cannot happen from your second best offensive player because Drew Holiday, sure, he can score and he played very well in this game, 33 points. But still, it's like you can't have a donut from any of your big three, especially against a Hawks team that plays 110% full out basketball for an entire 48 minute stretch, no matter who's on the floor. Like this team just competes the entire time they're out there. They play for each other. Each guy knows their role so well, kind of similar to the Clippers and the way they played in that game uh, in uh, in game three. So it's just very tough to beat a team like that, especially when they're so young, third youngest roster in the NBA playoffs this uh, in, in this go around. And they don't make a bunch of mistakes at all. 
They barely made mistakes in the final five minutes, Pat. That's what's so impressive to me is not only how well Trey Young plays and how well this team plays, but he's the only guy with more than two turnovers in the entire game, and that's because he's controlling the ball for 40-plus minutes. So, like, that's going to be expected. He had six turnovers. I'm sure he'd like to cut that down, but they don't make a lot of backbreaking mistakes, rarely make any backbreaking mistakes, and that's why they're so they're so well adept to win on the road. They've already got six road wins in these playoffs. Trey Young is a supervillain. He loves being on the road. He's so fun to watch. I think John Reggie Collins, Miller is loving it too. He loves calling yeah. Trey Young games. He was like, he was like, this is like reminding me of me. I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it really is reminiscent of Reggie Miller, like in the garden. I mean, Trey Young already did it. So I, I love Trey Young. Can't say it enough. But John Collins deserves so much respect too. I think we can talk about the maturity, yes. the way that the Hawks play. I think Collins plays with about as much maturity as you can. <clears throat> he knows his role so well and his ability to shoot threes, catch lobs, defend. He defends so hard. The way that he was able to defend against Embiid was huge in that series. And he's doing it again with Giannis. And so I think he deserves about as much credit as you can give anybody. And, and with how hard he plays on defense and how efficient he can still be on offense, he's going to get a huge contract. Did he already right. get one? Did he already prematurely sign one? I hope not because he's going to get Collins, he's, he's got he, – he bet on himself this year. He's an unrestricted free agent, so – Back up that break struck, baby. Mm-hmm. He's going to be getting paid. But the uh, the biggest issue for me, I think, with Milwaukee is like that fourth or fifth guy, too. Like I mentioned the top three, how they no one can have a bad game. And it's because like Bryn Forbes, you'd love him to be that fourth or fifth guy, but he can't defend it at all. And then that kind of thing, he could kind of defend. But what did he do, <laughs> Pat? Shoots air ball. Three with 17 seconds left. And then Trey Young makes the two free throws to basically ice the game. It was a complete air ball. It wasn't even close. It was like the uh, was it some not uh, a long is a long came Polly with Ben Stiller where uh, where his buddies at the it's like the 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 like most used gift for basketball misses where he just like <laughs> he's the white guy shooting the like jump shot and just completely goes over the backboard. It's just like come on, man, what are we doing with Pat Connaughton taking that shot in this game in that moment? Just crazy because well, that's, Bogdan Bogdanovich that's, clearly hampered, and and this team, this Hawks team, isn't even at full strength themselves. As I uh, have to correct myself, Pat, 1958, the Hawks did win a title. 1958 NBA champions have not won an Eastern Conference Finals game though since moving to Atlanta in 1968. That's the problem. Is who else? The, the Bucks don't have anyone else to put on the court there. So when the ball lands to Connaughton for a wide open three, it's a great look for everybody, but at the same time. Everybody in the stadium and everybody watching on TV went, "Oh no, Pat Connaughton for the win!" Like it's just imagine not betting which- on Pat Connaughton there. Imagine like just having having actual money on that. You're just like, "Oh my god, this is happening! Like this is really happening." I, I had money on it the other way, and I went, "Yes, Pat Connaughton." <laughs> it was so like it's it's tough. I that's what they're gonna need though. The Bucks absolutely need someone to to come up off the bench. And that's why I love the Hawks so much is they can bring Lou Will and Gallinari off the bench or have pretty much one through six shooters where that ball could fall in their lap. And I'm not having that same reaction to, to whoever it is that I'm having for whether it be Brian Forbes or Connaughton or PJ Tucker. So like, it's just where the bucks are. It's just not a, it's not a deep roster. And unless Middleton and Giannis are perfect all game, I don't see where uh, – I don't see them having much of a chance in almost any of these. I could see this being a quick series for the Hawks, honestly. Oh, okay. And we shall see as we got uh, we got game two tonight uh, on Friday night to uh, – to Do we have – what's the line? The next portion of the series. Uh, I think it's probably going to be the – I think it's the Bucks minus eight. Yeah, Bucks minus eight. I, I think the Bucks actually come back and, and punch the Hawks in the mouth here tonight. I do think they will. They're gonna. I, I could see a a, a barrage three point performance. Somebody's gonna have to hit some threes here, and I would expect the home team to do it. I don't think they they go eight for thirty five or whatever the hell it was in the uh, in the first game. So I would expect the Bucks to get the dub here tonight. But if you're the Hawks, you're playing with house money right now, getting to go back to the ATL full crowd, come completely raucous, and we'll see what Trey Young and company can cook up in game number two though before heading to Atlanta for the. Uh, Three, four portion of this series and some teams, Pat, that are trying to get to this point as we close out lane number one quickly on these coaching topics in the NBA. We have the Celtics hiring, uh, is it Ime Udoka? 
I think that is that is how you say it. I'm pretty sure that is that is the name of their new coach. He is going to be spearheading this new uh, new look team, Ime Udoka. Yeah, Nets assistant Ime Udoka to the next level, hopefully, for Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and whatever point guard they're going to have now with Kimba Walker now out of the fold. I think he's paid his dues, Pat. He's been under Greg Popovich. He's a guy that's actually, I think, a great hire, a solid pick. Uh, I think he had a great relationship with Stump for by the two uh, the two superstars in uh, Boston. So to me, I like this this hire. It doesn't like I don't know. It's a coaching hire. It's just like in the NFL. Like I don't know who's going to be good. That's what I always say when these coaching hires happen. Unless it's like an Adam Gay situation, and we didn't have any crazy eyes from Ime Udoka. So. Third Boston coach in the past 17 years trying to become the first one to Doc Rivers, obviously, to win a title in the city. They got to figure out how they are going to get back to that defensive stalwart level, trying to get back to that uh, type of great defensive acumen they were able to lean on in those Eastern Conference Finals runs over the past three to four years. But first and foremost, Pat, they got to figure out a point guard. I think this is a solid hire, though. Don't have... A ton of insight into it, but good job by the Celtics to kind of get out in front and get this done before the combine gets rolling and everything has starts to pick up in this abbreviated offseason. I wasn't uh, extremely familiar, but it seems like a great hire just because Ime seems like an actual coach, you know, and I love when when teams hire actual coaches and not just a former player that was good at the sport. So, I mean, seven years under Greg Popovich. Was, was was with the Nets, so learned under elite players in all those situations. I think it would be a great right. hire. Brad Stevens gets to get be there to help him out, lead him along the way if needed. Brad Stevens was, you know, I think fantastic his first couple of years. Maybe, I don't know, it's going to be fascinating, whatever happens in that Celtics dynamic, but it's definitely the next generation. So nonetheless, it'll be right. fun. And I think it was smart to, to hire African-American head coach. You get more just they needed to diversify the front office, I think, a little bit, diversify the uh, the coaching staff, diversify everything. Brad Stevens, I think, recognized that. And it's been a conscious effort to, I think, just kind of shake up the entire environment there in Boston. We'll see if change breeds a uh, newfound success for the Boston Celtics as change is hopefully going to breed continued continuity, I would guess, for the Indiana Pacers, who never, ever seem to want to tank. I think they've had one lottery pick, Pat, in the past 15 years, and that was Paul George. So, hey, boom, boom, you hit that one, even though Paul George is now lighting it up in the Western Conference Finals for the uh, the Los Angeles Clippers. But Rick Carlisle headed to Indiana and taking the Pacers job on a four-year, $29 million deal. That is a lot of cheddar. It makes me think they're going to be with Rick Carlisle for the long haul, even though um, Carlisle does have the championship in 2010-11, Pat. He has not won a playoff series since then. And it brings the begs the question, does this really move the needle for the Pacers? Is this is this to you anything that gets them past the classic four to five seed? Or is it just like to me it's just all right, Rick Carlisle, I don't I think he's a great coach. I think he's really good, but I don't know if he's that much better going to be able to raise the level of this team to the two to three seed status that they probably have to get to if they want to make any serious noise again in the playoffs like they did early last decade. No, I don't, I don't like the Pacers roster that much either. I love Sabonis and I still, I do think Miles Turner can still get better, but I don't know what Rick Carlisle is going to do to really make a difference for that roster and that team. So, yeah, I mean, I think Sabonis is a fascinating potential trade piece. I think teams would love to have him on a roster. I don't know if he carries a team because he's he's obviously the best player on that team. So I'm not sure if he's capable of carrying a team into the top four, top three. So, right, and he's I coming he's back. Whatever, basically, it's a return for Ricardo. He's already been there for four years. We've seen this, seen this story from 03 to 07. Had a 181 and 147 record. Was fourth best record of all time in Pacers history. Whatever that's that's worth behind Frank Vogel, Larry Brown, and Nate McMillan, who is. Uh, a guy the Pacers, Pat, probably would love to have back at this point, given uh, yeah. given the issues they had with uh, the other Nate Brokren, who they fired after just one year with the team going 34 and 38. 61-year-old coach. We'll see how he, if he can get the job done. And actually, funny enough, in the press conference for that job, Pat, he endorsed Jason Kidd to be the head coach of the Dallas Mavericks. 
Now, it appears that endorsement might have carried some weight. We don't know if it carried any weight at all, but uh, mere hours after that endorsement by Rick Carlisle yesterday, the Mavericks error uh, announced by Tim McMahon and Adrian Wisnerowski of ESPN to be finalizing a deal with Jason Kidd to be the new head coach of the Dallas Mavericks. Coming over from the uh, Los Angeles Lakers bench, I, I get the coaching hire in a vacuum, Pat, but as I said to you before we started recording, the Dallas Mavericks have uh, have recently been involved in a very upsetting and disgusting sexual harassment scandal within their own front office. And now they're hiring Jason Kidd, a man who I am all for second chances. I get it. I, I believe everybody deserves second chances if, if the situation allows, obviously. But back in January 2001, Jason Kidd arrested for hitting his now ex-wife, Jumana. He pled guilty to spousal abuse and was fined two hundred dollars. Had to make had to take anger management traded or training, and he was uh, traded to the Nets from Dallas Mavericks, the team that he was playing for that year, and now is the coach of. The optics here, Pat, are not very good, and this better be a home run to hire Jason Kidd in a situation and a history where home runs have not been happening a lot, especially in the post playing career of Jason Kidd. When you look at the last time he had a head coaching position with the Milwaukee Bucks, even though people will point out, critics will point out, Mavericks fans might point out immediately, look at Monty Williams and his second coaching gig with the Phoenix Suns. And I will say, okay, I get it. But man, with all of the stuff I just brought up, this better be a home run hire and Luka Doncic better be a buddy, buddy, the Jason kid right away, or this could go sour very quickly. And Pat, it, this could be the folk. Like I'm not trying to be sports talk radio guy here, but this could be the fulcrum of keeping Luka Doncic on your franchise or him becoming potentially the first player in NBA history to turn down a max rookie extension and go test the waters elsewhere. <laughs> you, yeah, I think I might've put my foot in my mouth last week when I was vouching for Jason Kidd, because the way that you laid it out right there looks like a disaster is brewing in the, in Dallas. Jason Kidd hasn't been a great head coach. The second stint with the Mavericks, though, Pat, better. He won the title in 2010-11. So I I guess the second stint, they, they were happy to have him back. <laughs> as a player. But what has Jason yeah. Kidd done as a coach? So that's... He, well, he was on the Team USA. He has, like, within league circles, I will say this. He's been clowned outside of the NBA league circles because of, like, obviously the optics of the the Brooklyn Nets or the Bucks job where he's dropping drinks on the floor to get timeouts <laughs> intentionally and crap that like that. Like, all yeah, that dude. was really weird. I didn't understand that at all. I'll never forget that. But he was not good with the Bucks. 183 and 190 as a head coach. Um, was with the Nets in 2013-14. I just uh, – 9 and 15 career playoff record. And I, I don't know, man. I, I think it might work. But this is going to be his third stint, like I said – with the Brooklyn Nets for one year, then the Bucks from 2014 to uh, to 2018. So, whew, man, I don't know. Like <laughs> this is this is a big Hail Mary swing a guy that's really liked in league circles. Like I said, players I believe really like him, but the results just aren't there. They just aren't not there. And especially when, like I said last week, when we were talking about this uh, this Luka Doncic Maverick situation, Jamal Mosley was his favorite favorite guy in the coaching staff, Rick Carlisle's lead assistant, and Carlisle endorsed Jason Kidd over Jamal Mosley. So that's very, very interesting stuff right there. Yeah, I don't know why Luka Doncic wasn't the one leading the interviews and hiring the coach himself, right, if you're the Mavericks. Just whoever he wants, let him be the coach almost. Have they hired a GM yet? I don't believe that they've replaced the GM either yet. So interesting that they're hiring Jason Kidd as – the coach before they put a GM in place, especially with, I guess, the swirling questions around Chris Stops and Luca and their compatibility and ability to win with each other, I guess. So I guess another whole layer to that, that I, I don't, yeah, this absolute swinging for the fences. You're right. Yeah. So the GM discussions, I'll go and ask that right now. Nico Harrison, longtime Nike executive is believed to uh, to be joining the team. Strong relationship, according to Tim McMahon of ESPN, with Luka Doncic. So that's, I think, a solid hire right there. And you know what? We'll, we'll see. Like I said, we'll see. I, I, I'm just going to say I'm pumping the brakes. I'm not going to be all uh, planning the the the, uh, the championship parade for the Jason Kidd-led Dallas Mavericks anytime soon. But we'll see what happens.
We shall see what happens. Lane number two. We had a long lane number one right there talking about the NBA. MLB, Pat. We got to talk about these uh, these midseason, just about midseason. We're getting to that point. MVP races, especially in the AL, where I think it's it's basically Otani's to lose at this point. I, I, I give Vladimir Guerrero a nice runner-up chance. He could, I think, end up taking the award. It's possible. But right now, Otani, the leader in the clubhouse, especially when you think about what he's doing on the mound and on the uh, in the batter's box, like 2.58 ERA. He's got a. He's, he could lead the team in strikeouts. He's got. He's the only player, according to Elias, to have led his team in homers and strikeouts in the same year since Walter Johnson in the 1910s, Ed Walsh in 08, not 2008, 1908, and Babe Ruth in 1916. But none of them had more than three homers when they did it. So, that's what we're talking about here, Otan is destroying baseballs. He's killing, killing people at at will. And what do you know? It's perfect because the Angels are like what thirty six and thirty eight, and uh, or and just right, right, right below, uh, right below five hundred. So it's a classic Angels season, but a fantastic season for Shohei Otani. Give us some more love for Shohei. It's 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 been so much fun to watch. I I, I went through uh, the ESPN piece the other day of his like top ten uh, swings and pitches or top ten swings of the season. I think it was uh, with home runs and different stuff. Just astounding. Like, I think he has, I think they said he had the second hardest hit ball in the stat cast era this season, which he uh, came off the, the the barrel a couple months ago. I forget what game it was, but an unbelievable year so far by Shohei Otani. It's incredible. You could, each side of Shohei, the, the pitcher and the hitter, is an all-star in its own se- in its own self. And he's doing it both at the same time. I think the most fun stat this year, which is a little bit of uh, exaggeration, but he pretty much has hit the ball harder than anybody with like 119 exit velocity off the bat. He's hit the ball further than anybody, hitting it 480 feet. He's thrown the ball faster than just about anybody, throwing it 101 miles an hour, and he has the (laughs) fastest sprint time from first to second base recorded this year. What else do you want the man to do? He throws, hits, runs faster than you do. And he is just literally – he's incredible. He's so fun to watch. He's entertaining. He's humble. Like, he's just everything that you want in a baseball player, an athlete, everything you want to look up to as a role model. Absolutely love Shohei. And to be able to get to watch him hit 500-foot bombs in Coors Field at the Home Run Derby is going to be absolutely right. fascinating. It's going to be so much fun. I hope that the MVP goes to whoever wins the home run derby. And that's a challenge to Vlad Jr. to get back in it because they have that righty lefty duo and uh, challenge of those two in Coors Field would be so fun. The ball is just going to be flying through that thin air. But it's like, look at some of the stats, Shohei. He's striking out 12 hitters per nine inning. That's elite. He's hitting, he's leading the league in home runs. He has a slugging percentage of 633. A weighted runs created plus, which is a weighted stat, 100 being uh, the league average. He's just 162. He's 62% better than the average hitter in Major League Baseball this year. And he's throwing 100 miles an hour on the mound. He's just nothing we've ever, nothing we've ever seen before. If him and Babe Ruth took 10 at-bats against one another, Shohei would go 10 for 10 with 10 homers. And Babe Ruth would strike out 10 times on that 89 mile an hour splitter, which might be the best pitch in all of baseball. So, I mean, it, it has just been a pleasure to watch Shohei this year. So, and it's, it's just it's, so nice, like, knock on wood, staying healthy. Like, he is, it's so beautiful when athletes and sports stories live up to the billing and then exceed it. Yes. Like, he's exceeding the expectations. People are like, oh, he might be able to, like, keep this going for a couple months and then they'll they'll switch the position like like hunter green with uh with our Cincinnati reds green hunter green was at one point a couple of years ago when he was drafted could they keep him at stop and let him pitch? are they gonna let him stay in the field and do it it just becomes uh that people just always end up picking a lane not shohei otani and the fact that like in japan there were stories that people would just sit there and marvel at him walking around the street because he just looks like a different human being out there in the wild like there are just some of these athletes among us and Otani is one of them having one of the greatest seasons uh modern seasons of baseball we've ever seen he's playing he's playing defense and offense and everything in between it's crazy uh crazy to watch Vlad Guerrero also playing great great ball 
Uh, 77 runs created, according to BaseballReference.com, by Vlad Guerrero, also living up to the billing after he burst on the seat a couple years ago. That's 17 more than any other player in the AL and also eclipses Otani by 22. So he hasn't beat a little bit in the offensive metrics, I think, on the edges, but we'll see how that race develops in the AL. The NL, Jacob deGrom, it's well, a lot on, of uh, – What do you got, Pat? Just about Vlad Jr. So Vlad – like we should give him talk about sports stories living up to the billing. Vlad Jr. was the first ever amateur baseball player to get graded a 70 out of 70 on or 80 out of 80. So the way that scouting scout baseball players, 80 is the best you can get, 20 is the lowest. No hitter was ever given an 80 hit rating ever by scouts until Vlad Jr. And people thought it was just, oh yeah, because he's Vlad's kid, this, that. They wanted the hype. For him to actually be living up to it, he's only like 22 years old, 21. He is still extremely young, too. He's a 196 weighted runs created. He's literally been twice as good as the average player. Slash line, he's hitting almost 240, 440 on base, and a 670 slugging. It's out of this world. He's having one of the best hitting seasons in literally the last 20 years. So I he, he might steal the MVP from Shohei, and it will be – an absolute race. He might win a triple crown this year. It's crazy it's what awesome. Vlad's doing. He's top three in all three right now, I think, right? For yeah. triple crown. And that in a in a year like this, with the way that how hard hitting is for players, it's just incredible what the what both of them are doing. So credit to both. All right, Pat. And the NL, I'll ask you this question, then we'll move along to a Wander Franco and close it out with the NFL uh, rule changes and the Steelers. Will Anyone but a pitcher win the NL MVP? That's my question to you. If DeGrom stays healthy, no. It just wouldn't be fair to the season he's having. He might not give up another run all year. He might strike out everybody he sees. He's got half an ERA. 0. 0.5. <laughs> 72 innings. Like, what are we What are we discussing? Like, what? what are we talking about here? This is crazy. It kind he's of goes also, off of the no-no thing that, we'll, uh, that we were talking about as well. But it's I mean, he's also – and he's also hitting the ball. I think his batting average is like 432 right now. He obviously doesn't get as many at-bats as others, but he has five <laughs> RBIs on the year. He's given up four runs. So he's driven in more runs than he's allowed on the mound, which is just insane. So he's conquered every part of this sport too. It's just easy for him. He doesn't even tr- take batting practice, I'm sure. And he goes out there and gets a hit four out of ten times right now on pitchers and He's absolutely dominating the National League. He's dominating baseball. He figured it out, and he's just better than everybody. So I'd be – it's just – I think someone had a quote that was like, how is it going against uh, Jacob deGrom? And it was just like, it's not fun. I didn't have fun. We were just waiting for him to get out of the game. It was it's not fun but going against a guy <laughs> with more runs batted in than earned runs overall <laughs> on the season. Literally has six RBIs, and I think he's given up, what, Pat, like four runs or three runs in the entire year? Yeah, yeah. Effortless, too. He throws an effortless 102 miles an hour and then an effortless 95-mile-an-hour slider. Didn't he come into the league with, like, 94-mile-an-hour velocity, and he's upped it, like, somehow in the 102? Every year. Just crazy. Crazy, crazy. A guy that's hoping to up his game and, and tap into the debut night that he had as he's gone a little bit cold, obviously, but it's baseball. Long season, a long career for Wander Franco, even though he's three games in and has uh, has a two-for-11 uh, hit line so far. Magical debut, though, Pat. That was a lot of fun to watch uh, Watch him hit the game-tying homer um, in the uh, in the debut against the Boston Red Sox on Tuesday. But I, I, I like me some Wander Franco. I like the swing. I like his dad. I like the whole vibe. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch him play like, what, three or four years at the Rays, and then they'll trade him somewhere. That's that's the uh, timeline we're looking at. That was a good one. He is very, very fun. He's switch hitter. He's the first Major League Baseball player or first player to have an at-bat Major League Baseball born in the 2000s. So it's a new right. generation, Russ. He's only 20 years old, born in the year 2000. And, yeah, he's electric. He's super exciting. He's Obviously, an incredible defensive athlete, the way that you see him play in the field. But for him to be able to hit on both sides of the plate like he is, people see him as Chipper Jones down the line. And Chipper Jones had one of the greatest seasons as a switch hitter ever. I think that just adds to to the lore of a player. You know, the Mickey Mickey Mantle was a switch hitter, right? Am I getting that right? Uh, but I think so, yeah. 
that just adds to the electric factor of just the athlete and everything about him. He is just, and that's the thing that baseball needs is pure athletes. It's what's made the sport more exciting in the past few years from the Acunas to the Trouts and all that with the young players coming in this new generation. And he's just enough adds to it. And yeah, the number one prospect in all baseball, the Rays, yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how, how quickly he gets uh, churned over for 10 new ace pitchers, but it'll be a fun while it lasts. And it is just not fair how smart Tampa Bay has been and how well they've been able to win in Major League Baseball, but then still churn out top prospect after top prospect after top prospect. And their developmental uh, leadership has been incredible. They could be ruining baseball, depending how nerdy and how serious you want to get about it. But they definitely figured out this system. I like it. I like the plucky Braves just throwing a big old wrench into the uh, the big fat cats up top. It's fun. It's fun to watch. It makes uh, makes uh, sports more unpredictable. That's what we like about it. Not being able exactly. to predict what's going to happen. And speaking of not being able to predict what's going to happen, the bullpen for the Chicago Cubs, Pat, as we close out lane number two, had no idea that they had a no-no going each time a successive pitcher was going out to the mound last night against the Los Angeles Dodgers and their 4 nothing combined no-hitter, the seventh one this season, the most ever before July 1st in baseball history and the most in a season already, just what, not even 80, 80 games into the year for most teams before 1900 when the modern era began. Zach Davies got it rolling for six innings and then uh, Andrew Chafin, Craig Kimbrell, and Ryan Tapera. Got it done in these successive frames, Pat. How crazy is that? That I mean, I don't really care about the Cubs. Whatever, no hitter, cool, good job, guys. First, first combined no hitter in Cubs history. Fun, fun. It's like a triple play now to me. Uh, I'd rather see hits. But the fact that the entire bullpen didn't know what was going on, and you think like, well, how do they not know what's going on? They're not paying attention to the game. Well, no, they're paying attention basically, but you can't see the scoreboard from the area where the home Wrigley bullpen is. So they had no idea what was going on. I guess the murmur of the crowd didn't signal anything. And one, two, three, you got guys just rolling out there trying to do their jobs and get no hitters in one innings. They figure out that uh, it's a no hitter. And Craig Kimbrell is like looking around at the end of the game. Like, why is, why is everybody freaking out? Like we just, and then he starts successively celebrating. That's got to be the, uh, the most jubilation filled, I think, way to experience a no hitter. Uh, learning that you had just contributed after you had already gotten it all done. Didn't even have to think about it, Pat. Well, they were in LA, Russ. And so I don't know how- right, That's right. Sorry, sorry. They were in LA. I don't know how you're going to explain this one, right? We got the umpires doing TSA strip searches for sticky stuff. You're playing in LA against the Dodgers, the best team in baseball, people would probably argue. An incredible lineup with MVPs scattered around and- you're th- at another no-hitter. How do you explain this one? I guess you could explain the other ones away from the spider tag. You could say this, that, but I guess it's just pitching dominates in Major League Baseball anymore. And I guess eventually the pendulum will swing with all of these. I guess what's what we thought with Trout and Acuna and all these special hitters, but somehow these pitchers still find ways to be dominant. Just shows how hard hitting a baseball is. I mean, the best team in the league can get no-hit any given night against you know, Johnny Holstaff and whoever is coming out of the bullpen for the Chicago Cubs these days. So that's just how that's just how the ball the ball rolls in Major League Baseball. No spider tag involved here. It was the, the clean no hitter. Maybe the first clean no hitter ever, Pat. Might possibly be. So maybe this is a new era. This isn't the triple play. This is the uh this is the clean this is a CNH, the clean no hitter. The clean no hitter is what we've imagined us Imagine us getting six more no hitters, you know, post sticky stuff policing. That would then then what do you do? Rob Manfred would love that, Pat. You know, <laughs> Rob Manfred would love more no hitters. That's just what Rob Manfred wants. Is a no hitter a week? I bet. I bet he wants to see that every single week. As the Dodgers no hit for the twentieth time in franchise history. That's the most in major league history. No other franchise has ever been no hit twenty times, and it was the sixth time in the past fifty years a defending world champ was no hit. Also, funny enough, the first time the Dodgers were no hit, Pat, since the Cubs and Jake Arrieta no hit them in 2015. So uh, tip of the cap to Chicago. Funny little story there as the entire bullpen in the Los Angeles Dodgers bullpen just did not realize what was going on the entire time they were pulling off a no hitter. Yeah. There have been seven no hitters. Do you think Rob Manfred has even watched seven 
baseball games this season. Full I, baseball I, I, games? Yeah. I don't think he has. Like start I to finish? No. Maybe no one way. or two start to finish. But I'm sure he's picked some up like in the seventh inning maybe here and there. But, I mean, Rob's a, Rob's a busy guy, Pat. You can't expect him to actually watch the games. Come on. What are we talking about here? What are we talking about here? Speaking of watching the games, uh, a new way for fans to enjoy the games and the rest of the NFL community to enjoy the games in lane number three here as we have helmet changes. So, real quick, in the final 10 minutes, we're going to speed through this lane. But uh, Pat and I have some uh, some of our favorites that we wanted to discuss and I'll go ahead and start with mine, Pat. With the new rule change, we can uh, we can go ahead and and pull it up here with what is going on. But they're going to be able to access an alternate helmet, one alternate helmet only for each team, and they're going to be able to wear it with a throwback jersey or the uh, color rush jersey or something like that. But it can't be worn, I don't think, with the regular home threads. This is all coming in 2022, according to NFL spokesman Brian McCarthy. Um, it was dropped in 2013 because of safety concerns around concussions, all that. It was obviously heating up around that time. They didn't want to take the risk. But the second helmet can be worn only with so-called classic alternate or color rush jerseys. And all players must be fitted with the helmets, obviously, uh, before training camp. So without further ado, Pat, my number one pick for the alternate helmet that I hope comes back. Let's go with the uh, the Seattle Seahawks. With the old silver silver bullet stripe right there, you got the uh, the Seahawks logo on the side, the old throwback one. That's my favorite right there. I love the old uh, Steve Largent photos right there. Good old classic Steve uh, catching the football, fully extended with that Seahawk flying through the air. I actually don't hate this pick, especially since the Seahawks have been maybe the most modern jersey, like embracing that sort of like new age look. I think mm-hmm. it'd be really cool to see them trot out there in some real throwback old school jerseys. That could be fun. For sure. For sure. All right. We'll go with your pick. We'll uh we'll start with with Pat's namesake here. The old uh the old Pat's the old uh Pat's Pat right here. Patriot Pat. We're gonna roll him up here onto the screen. A uh, a throwback to say the least. One that I every time I see this logo, I think, all right, this is this is Tom Brady. And of course, Pat sends me the perfect picture of it right here with the Patriot Pat logo. That's one of the best logos in sports, I think, of the old uh, Minuteman uh, getting set to, uh, to uh, snap the ball. Right. I wish we had an even closer up image of that, too. He's I'm a huge fan of characters and logos and especially in throwback logos. Right. When you just get a good old like brown dog or something. Oh, yeah, there we go. Nice quality photo. But Patriot Pat right there. Absolutely love a good character, especially in the throwbacks. That's where a lot of my picks are. It's a, yeah, it's classic. That's as classic as you get as far as NFL throwbacks go. All right, here we go. We got another one here. The Dick for Meal special, Pat. Just reminds me of the movie Invincible. Every time I see it, I love this logo. It's it's right up there for me with the Seahawks. Wasn't quite at the top for my picks, though. It's the old Seahawk, the Flying Eagle. It's something about the bird wings, something about the mm. bird logos. I like it a lot. Look at old Dick for Meal right there. Uh, just, just, just tuning in his quarterback, Josh Ron Jaworski. That's that's. There is nothing more synonymous with the Eagle Wing than Ron Jaworski right there. Look at that mustache just flowing through the wind. I hope they bring that one back. That could look good with Jalen Hurts. I'm absolutely thinking of Randall Cunningham in those jerseys. So I did see. Randall I did see photoshops of Jalen Hurts in those throwbacks, and yeah, I do think those would look extremely cool. It would be a great throwback to some of those old times. And All I think right, we'll even in a modern way, Pat. Oh, I think sorry, that Pat, jersey, yeah, that jersey that the Eagles had, I think would play really well in the way like the modern cut of jerseys are too and all that. All right, oh, there we yeah. go. Falcon Pat here. This is a nice one. I was jealous of this pick. This is going to be a fun one for them to bring back. Michael Vick. What else can you say? It's Michael Vick all the way when you think of this logo. I like this, this choice, Pat. Those black jerseys, too, that those throwback ones, the Falcons could throw on with that bright red helmet. I think that's just a great look. I love a bright helmet against some dark jerseys. I don't necessarily love the Steelers' bright yellow, but if you give me a nice black jersey with some type of eccentric helmet, I think it just stands out. Looks looks awesome. You look like a warrior. <laughs> Big fan. All right, then the final one from me. It's Johnny Elway. That's all you think of when you see this logo. Not quite able to get the title pulled off 
with uh, with this classic logo, the old uh, Durham Bulls. You could think of it. They kind of stole it, but this is this is who I think of when I think of the Denver Broncos and John Elway. It's the it's the Bucking Bronco logo, and even this one, Pat. Look at this one. This one would be interesting with the uh, with the old kind of ugly Bronco. I don't know if I want them to do that. If you can only pick one, I want them to take this one. It just just screams defiance, screams intensity. Look at that. Uh, look at that neighing horse right there, just ready to, to to stomp on some dudes. This one fit my love for characters and logos, so I was close to picking this one as well. I had never seen that ugly donkey logo. That, that one was that. Yeah, that we'll go. Let's go back to that real quick. That was that's that's a tough that's a tough pick right there. That's that's really tough. We don't like this uh, this 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 Bronco right here. This is and then John Elway didn't like it either. Look at that look at that face from John Elway. He's not a big fan of that Bronco either right now. But uh, I'm so ooh, confused. Man. I've never seen that logo. Oh, uh, all right. Here we go. Last pick from Pat is uh, it is a good one here. The the classic the cream sickle. We all know it well, and this is definitely going to be a choice, I believe, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The classic creamsicle back that just is the opposite of their success this year, Pat, and in the Tom Brady era, one season, one championship. When you think of this logo, I think of the uh, the, the sloppy Buccaneers, the expansion team Buccaneers, the, uh, the what, 0-14, 0-16 Buccaneers, but they're going to try to flip that script, I bet. When they were, they I would expect them to bring this one back in 2022. They would have to. This one is so classic. The Jack Sparrow character, he's just a great looking logo, great looking guy, suave, it's smooth. And yeah, if they could reverse history, get some dubs in those uniforms, I think it'd be great. It would be paying homage to the the tough men who built the franchise in the expansion years of the Creamsicles. Unquestioned, Pat. I love it. I love it. The NFL helmets bringing them back. Maybe the Bengals with a little white. Uh, the the Steelers are gonna, I'm sure, add some yellow or something, or do something different with their uh, their throwbacks. The Bengals. I don't know if they're gonna do the white helmets or if they'll just go back to the old Bengal script or maybe the Bengal kind of classic 1970s logo. There's so many different choices, and uh, we will see what happens with all that, Pat. But different choices and different names now on your Pittsburgh Steelers offensive line they release david DeCastro as we'll close it up with this topic to end the show a jam-packed show on this friday june 25th morning trey turner in david DeCastro out pat DeCastro, one of the best offensive linemen in the nfl no question since he entered the league he was a stalwart at that guard position for uh for your pittsburgh steelers for so long and i'm sure it's a it's it's a tough day to see a guy like that go, especially when it seemingly was just because of injury issues and continuous bone spurs in the ankle that are going to force him to have surgery and possibly retire. He said he is contemplating it after uh, being released by the Steelers. Tough news. Absolutely was going to be the only stable part of that line, we thought. And... Yeah, so it was tough. The the designation of the release, too, the not football injury, I guess, is how they released them. It's, I'm happy that it was bone spurs. I thought it might be something related to, like, concussions or, like, head issues. So I guess that's a little bit better. But you do have to feel for the guy. I do wonder. That would have been tough to do the him. NFI designation on concussions on the non-football injury list. That would have been t- that would probably would have been tough. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, I'm happy it wasn't. Uh, I don't. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I have absolutely no idea what the O-line will look like, how it will play together. I've literally seen not a single one of their week one starters play on the field probably. So it'll be fascinating. They got a new coach in there, a new offensive coordinator. They got a brand new fun toy at running back. Just cannot wait to see Najee Harris and what he is capable of. He's just going to be a video game out there. But hopefully they have – at least just uh, some attitude on the line maybe is what I'm hoping for. Maybe guys who just want to be there. It's uh, – I don't know how to explain it. It's going to be, it's gonna be fun to watch, kind of defeated. You seem kind of defeated right now. Uh, well, I, <laughs> what am I supposed to defend? Like, I don't know. I don't even know what to know, say it's, because – It's it's tough. I They have really ref- – they have – ignored this offensive line problem they did it in the in the in the first round of the draft that's why we got in that debate and like all right Najee Harris let's see what you can do bud <laughs> but like Jaquuma Okorafor 
is the only returning starter on this offensive line, Pat. He is moving from last season's spot on the right side of the line at right tackle over to left tackle. So he's going to be playing a completely new position. And then we got Kevin Dotson, who played decent last year, kind of in fill-in spots at times for DeCastro, but he's supposed to be the left guard. And he was playing in for DeCastro at the right guard position last year. So uh, it, it'll it'll be interesting. Trey Turner, you're trying to tap back into his Pro Bowl form that he had with the Panthers. Uh, was horrible last year. Was a bottom 10 tackle in the league or bottom 10 guard in the league. Had like a 31 overall, uh, overall PFF grade. So maybe he can return the form, but there's a reason he was kind of out there in June 25th as a guy that just, just kind of hanging in the breeze. So I don't know. I'm not going to rub it in. I'm not going to drive home the stake. Like I mentioned yesterday, I think you liked that tweet too, where the the Steelers, I was like, man, it's, it's, it's tough looks on this offensive line. We'll see if Mike Tomlin can get this squad to nine wins after he's never had a losing season, which is insane. I followed that up with the Steelers have had less losing seasons in this millennia than they have won Super Bowls. So it's a team that's figured it out before. We'll see what they have in store as we are figuring out the end of this show uh, at the end of uh, riding three by three. Any final thoughts? about? Yeah. I mean, it's the unknown. This could come out and be a top 10 offensive line next year. So while it doesn't go. look Glass good. Glass half full, Pat. That's what I like to hear. It's just the unknown. It's the unknown. You don't know what's going to happen. Jason Kidd. It's the unknown. We Roll the balls out. Let them play. That's why we yeah. do this podcast. Roll That's the balls out. the games, Russ. <laughs> I love it. For Patrick Fetch, I'm Russ Heltman. Hit it right on the dot with an hour-long show. A lot of topics we hit. It was a lot of fun. We are going to be back. Uh, probably back on a solo venture Tuesday morning next week. And then Pat, of course, with us every single Friday. Going to be a lot of fun. Keeping this rolling through the summer. Riding three by three. Have a great weekend, everybody.